God makes men sensible of their misery before he reveals his mercy and love. A sermon by Jonathan Edwards, Hosea 5.15 I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. and their affliction they will seek me early. In the preceding part of the chapter is threatened the destruction of Ephraim. Ephraim, in the prophet's generally means the ten tribes or the kingdom of Israel, as distinguished from the kingdom of Judah. When we read of Ephraim and Judah in the prophets, thereby is meant the whole people of Israel, of the twelve tribes, as in verse 12 of this chapter. Therefore will I be unto Ephraim as a moth, and to the house of Judah as rottenness. By Judah is meant the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, which were under the king of Judah. And by Ephraim is meant the ten tribes under the king of Israel. Ephraim is put for the whole kingdom of Israel, because Samaria, the seat of the kingdom, the royal city, was in that tribe. In the verse immediately preceding the text, it is declared in what a terrible manner God was about to deal with Ephraim. For I will be unto Ephraim as a lion, and as a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away, and none shall rescue him. In the text, God declares how he would deal with them after he had torn as a lion, and so on. And here, one, God declares how he would withdraw from them. I will go and return to my place when I have torn as a lion. I will go away. I will leave them in that condition. I will depart from them, and they shall see no more of me. 2. What God will wait for in them before he returns to them to show them mercy. There are three things here signified. 1. That they should be sensible of their guilt, till they acknowledge their offense. It is in the original, till they become guilty, that is, till they become guilty in their own eyes, till they are sensible of their guilt, in the same sense as the same expression is used in Romans 3 verse 19, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God, that is, become guilty in their own eyes. Number 2 that they would be sensible of their misery, implied in the expression, In their affliction they shall seek me. Their calamity was brought upon them, before God had torn them and left them. But in their pride and perverseness they were not well sensible of their own miserable condition, as this prophet observes in chapter 7, verse 9. Number 3 that they should be sensible of their need of God's help, which is implied in their seeking God's face, and seeking Him early, that is, with great care and earnestness. Before they would not seek God, they were not sensible of their helplessness, as we learn in the verse, but one preceding the text. When Ephraim saw his sickness, and Judah his wound, then went Ephraim to the Assyrian, and sent to King Jacob. But as we are there told, he could not heal him, nor cure his wound. And notwithstanding all the help he could afford, God wounded him, tore him as a young lion, and, as he declares, would leave him. And he should cease going to any other, and should be sensible that no other could heal, and accordingly come to him for healing. 
doctrine, that it is God's manner to make men sensible of their misery and unworthiness before he appears in his mercy and love to them. Section 1. That it is ordinarily thus with respect to the bestowment of great and signal mercies. And number two, that it is particularly so with respect to revealing his love and mercy to their souls. Number one, this is God's ordinary way before great and signal expressions of his mercy and favor. He very commonly so orders it in his providence and so influences men by his spirit that they are brought to see their miserable condition as they are in themselves and to despair of help from themselves or from an arm of flesh before he appears for them and also makes them sensible of their sin and their unworthiness of God's help. This appears from the account which the scriptures give us of God's dealings with his people. Joseph, before his great advancement in Egypt, must lie in the dungeon to humble him and prepare him for such honor and prosperity. The children of Jacob, before Joseph reveals himself to them, and they receive that joy and honor and prosperity which were consequent thereupon, pass through a train of difficulties and anxieties till at last they are reduced to distress and are brought to reflect upon their guilt, and to say that they were verily guilty concerning their brother. God humbled them in his providence, and then an end was put to all their difficulties, and their sorrow was turned into joy upon Joseph's revealing himself to them. Jacob, before he hears the joyful news of Joseph's being yet alive, must be brought into great distress at the parting with Benjamin and supposed loss of Simeon. He was reduced to great straits in his mind. He says in Genesis 42, verse 36, all these things are against me. But soon after this he had these gladsome tidings brought to him. Joseph is yet alive, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And to confirm it he sees the wagons and the noble presence when Joseph sent to him, so that he was now brought to say, It is enough. Joseph my son is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. And so with the children of Israel in Egypt, their bondage must wax more and more extreme. Their bondage had been very extreme, but yet Pharaoh gives commandment that more work should be laid upon them, and the taskmasters tell them they must get their straw where they can find it, and nothing of their work should be diminished. And quickly upon this was their deliverance. So when the children of Israel were brought to the Red Sea, the Egyptians pursued them and were just at their heels, and they were reduced to the utmost distress. They see that they must assuredly perish unless God work a miracle for them, for they were shut up on all sides. The Red Sea was before them, and the army of the Egyptians encompassing them round behind. And they cried unto the Lord, and then God wonderfully appeared for their help, and made them pass through the Red Sea, and put songs of deliverance into their mouths. 
So before God brought the children of Israel into Canaan, he led them about in a great and terrible wilderness through a train of difficulties and temptations for forty years that he might teach them in their dependence on him and the sinfulness of their own hearts. Deuteronomy 32 verse 10 He found him in a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. God brought them into those trials and difficulties in the wilderness to humble them and let them see what was in their hearts, that they might be convinced of their own perverseness by the many discoveries of it under those temptations, and so that they might be sensible that it was not for their righteousness that God made them his people and gave them Canaan, seeing it was so evident that they were a stiff-necked people. Deuteronomy 8 verses 2 and 3 and thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. And verses 15 through 17, Who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee, to do thee good at the latter end. And thou say in thine heart, My power and the might of my hand hath gotten me this wealth. And so we have examples of this from time to time in the history of the judges. When Israel revolted, God gave them into the hands of their enemies. He let them continue in their hands till they were reduced to great distress and saw that they were in a helpless condition and were brought to reflect on themselves and to cry unto the Lord. And then God raised them up a deliverer. And when they cried unto God, he would not deliver them till he had humbled them and brought them to their own unworthiness and to own that they were in God's hands. Judges 10, beginning with the tenth verse. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, saying, We have sinned against thee, both because we have forsaken our God and also served Balaam. And the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Did not I deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites? from the children of Ammon and from the Philistines, the Zidonians also and the Malachites and the Maonites did oppress you and you cried to me and I delivered you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, wherefore I will deliver you no more. Go and cry unto the gods which ye have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your tribulation. And the children of Israel said unto the Lord, we have sinned. Do thou unto us whatsoever seemeth good unto thee. Deliver us only, we pray thee, this day. And they put away the strange gods from among them, and served the Lord, and his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. And this is the method in which God declared from the beginning he would proceed with his people. 
Leviticus 26, verse 40, and so on, if they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their trespass which they trespassed against me, and that also they have walked contrary unto me, and that I also have walked contrary unto them, and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled, and they then accept of the punishment of their iniquity, then will I remember my covenant with Jacob, and also my covenant with Isaac, and also my covenant with Abraham will I remember, and I will remember the land. The land also shall be left of them, and shall enjoy her Sabbaths, while she lieth desolate without them, and they shall accept of the punishment of their iniquity, because even because they despise my judgments, and because their soul abhorred my statutes. And yet for all that, when they be in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, neither will I abhor them, to destroy them utterly, and to break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sakes remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt, in the sight of the heathen, that I might be their God. It is God's manner, when He will bestow signal blessings in answer to prayer, to make men seek them and pray for them with a sense of their sin and misery. As First Kings 8, verses 38 and 39, What prayer and supplication soever be made by any man, or by all thy people Israel, which shall know every man the plague of his own heart, and spread forth his hands towards this house, then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and forgive, and do, and give to every man according to his ways, whose heart thou knowest. For thou, even thou only, knowest the hearts of all the children of men. By knowing the plague of their own hearts is meant both their sin and misery. Being sensible of their misery is included, as is evident from the manner of expressing the same petition of Solomon's prayer, as it is related in Second Chronicles 6, verse 29. Then what prayer or supplication soever shall be made of any man, or of all thy people Israel, when every man shall know his own sore and his own grief? By which is probably meant his misery and his sin, which is the foundation of it. Paul gives us an account how God brought him to have despair in himself before a great deliverance which he experienced. Second Corinthians 1 verses 9 and 10 but we have the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death. How did Christ humble the woman of Canaan, or bring her to the exercise and expression of a sense of her own unworthiness, before he answered her and healed her daughter? When she continued to cry, after he answered her not a word, and seemed to take no notice of her, and his disciples desired him to send her away, and when she continued crying after him, he gave a very humbling answer, saying, it is not me to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And when she took it well, as only that being called a dog was not too bad, and only that she was therefore unworthy of children's bread, she only sought the crumbs. Then Christ answered her request. 
and the experience of God's people in all ages corresponds with those examples. It is God's usual method before remarkable discoveries of His mercy and love to them, especially by spiritual mercies, in an especial manner to humble them and make them sensible of their misery and helplessness in themselves and of their vileness and unworthiness either by some remarkably humbling dispensation of his providence or influence of his spirit. We are come now, number two, to show particularly that it is God's manner to make men sensible of their misery and unworthiness before he reveals his saving love and mercy to their souls. The mercy of God which he shows to a sinner when he brings him home to the Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest and most wonderful exhibition of mercy and love of which men are ever the subjects. There are other things in which God greatly expresses his mercy and goodness to men, many temporal favors. The mercies already mentioned which God bestowed upon his people of old, his advancing Joseph in Egypt, his deliverance of the children of Israel out of Egypt, his leading them through the Red Sea on a dry land, his bringing them into Canaan and driving out the heathen from before them, his delivering them from time to time from the hands of their enemies. These were great mercies, but they were not equal to this of his people from under the guilt and dominion of sin. Several of them were typical of this. And as God would thus prepare men for the bestowment of those less mercies by making them sensible of their guilt and misery, so especially will he so do before he makes known to them this great love of his in Jesus Christ. When God designs to show mercy to sinners, it is his manner thus to begin with them. He first brings them to reflect upon themselves and consider and be sensible what they are and what condition they are in. What has already been said proves this. There is a harmony between God's dispensations, and as we see that this is God's manner of dealing with men when he gives them other great and remarkable mercies and manifestations of his favor, it is a confirmation that it is his method of proceeding with the souls of men when about to reveal his mercy and love to them in Jesus Christ. Number 1. God makes men consider and be sensible of what sin they are guilty before it may be, they were very regardless of this. They went on sinning and never reflected upon what they did, never considered or regarded what or how many sins they committed. They saw no cause why they should trouble their minds about it. But when God convinces them, He brings them to reflect upon themselves. He sets their sins in order before their eyes. He brings their old sins to their minds so that they are fresh in their memory, things which they had almost forgotten, and many things which they used to regard as light offenses which were not wont to be a burden to their consciences, nor to appear worthy to be taken notice of, they are now made to reflect upon. Thus they discover of what a multitude of transgressions they have been guilty, which they have heaped up till they are grown up to heaven." There are some sins especially of which they have been guilty which are ever before them so that they cannot get them out of their minds. Sometimes when men are under conviction their sins follow them and haunt them like a specter. 
God makes them sensible of the sin of their hearts, how corrupt and depraved their hearts are. And there are two ways in which he does this. One is by setting before them the sins of their lives. They are so set in order before them, they appear so many and so aggravated that they are convinced what a fountain of corruption there is in their hearts. Their sinful natures appear by their sinful lies. There is sin enough which every man has committed to convince him that he is sold under sin, that his heart is full of nothing but corruption, if God by his Spirit leads him rightly to consider it. Another way which God sometimes makes use of is to leave men to such internal workings of corruption under the temptations which they have in their terrors and fears of hell. It shows them what a corrupt and wicked heart they have. God sometimes brings this good out of this evil to make men see the corruption of their nature by the workings of it under temptations which they have in their terrors about damnation. God leads them through the wilderness to prove them and let them know what is in their hearts as he did the children of Israel as we have already observed. By means of the trials which the children of Israel had in the wilderness, they might be made sensible what a murmuring, perverse, rebellious, unfaithful, and idolatrous people they were. So God sometimes makes sinners sensible what wicked hearts they have by their experience of the exercises of corruption, while they are under convictions. Not that this will in the least excuse men for allowing such workings of corruption in their hearts, because God sometimes leaves men to be wicked, that he may afterwards turn it to their good, when he in infinite wisdom sees meet so to do. We must not go and be wicked on purpose, that he may get good by it. It will be very absurd, as well as horridly presumptuous, for us so to do. Though God sometimes in his sovereign mercy makes those workings of corruption and a spirit of opposition and enmity against God, it means of showing them the vileness of their own hearts, and so to turn to their good. So God oftentimes is provoked thereby utterly with, to withdraw and forsake them, after the example of those murmurers who carcasses fail in the wilderness, of whom God swear in his wrath that they should never enter into his rest. And so they who allow themselves therein are the most likely so to provoke God. But it is God's manner to show men the plague of their own hearts by some means or other before he reveals his redeeming love to their souls. While sinners are unconvinced, sin lies hid. They take no notice of it. But God makes the law effectual to bring men's own sins of heart and life to be reflected on and observed. Romans 7 verse 9 I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived. Then sin appeared and came to light, which was not before observed. Joseph's revealing himself to his brethren is probably typical of Christ revealing himself to the soul of a sinner, making known himself in his love and in his new relation of a brother and a redeemer of his soul. But before Joseph revealed himself to them, they were made to reflect upon themselves and say, we are verily guilty. Number two, God convinces sinners of the dreadful danger they are in by reason of their sin. Having their sins set before them, God makes them sensible of the relation which their sin has to misery. And here are two things of which they are convinced about their danger. One, God makes them sensible that his displeasure is very dreadful. 
before they heard often about the anger of God and the fierceness of his wrath, but they were not moved by it. But now they are made sensible that it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. They are made in some measure sensible of the dreadfulness of hell. They are led with fixedness and impression to think what a dismal thing it will be to have God an enraged enemy, setting to work the misery of a soul, and how dismal it will be to dwell in such torment forever without hope. Isaiah 33:14. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness hath surprised the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Other sinners are told of hell, but convinced sinners often have hell, as it were, in their view. The being impressed with a sense of the dreadfulness of its misery is a cause why it works upon their imagination oftentimes, and it will seem as though they saw the dismal flames of hell, as though they saw God in implacable wrath exerting his fury upon them, as though they heard the cries and shrieks of the damned. Number 2. They are made in some measure sensible of the connection there is between their sins and that wrath, or how their sin and guilt exposes them to that wrath, of the dreadfulness of which they have such lively apprehension, and so fear takes hold of them. They are afraid that will be their portion, and they are sensible that they are in a miserable and doleful condition by reason of sin. Many things in the scripture make it evident that this is God's method. The account we have of our first parents confirms it. They had a sense of guilt and danger before Christ was revealed to them. They were guilty and were afraid of God's wrath and ran and hid themselves. They were terribly afraid when they heard God coming. And doubtless their sense of their guilt and fear when they were brought before God and were called to an account, and God asked them what they had done, and whether they had eaten of that tree whereof he commanded them that they should not eat, prepared them for a discovery of mercy. God made them sensible of their guilt and danger before he revealed to them the covenant of grace. It is probable that their reflecting upon what God said about the seed of the woman bruising the serpent's head soon wrought faith, that it was not long before that discovery made of a merciful design toward them was a means of true consolation and hope to them. Joseph's brethren were brought into great distress for fear of their lives before Joseph revealed himself to them. Those who were converted by Peter's sermon were first pricked in their hearts in a sense of their guilt and their danger, Acts 2.37. And Paul, before he had his first comfort, trembled and was astonished, Acts 9, verse 6, and continued three days and three nights, and neither ate nor drank, which expressed his great distress. The jailer, before he was converted, was in terror. He called for a light, and sprang in, and came trembling, and fell down before Paul and Silas. Acts 16, verses 29 and 30. Christ's invitation is made more especially to the weary and heavy laden, which doubtless has respect, at least partly, to laboring and being weary with a sense of guilt and danger. We read when David was in the cave, then every one who was in distress was gathered unto him. First Samuel 22, verse 1. 
This doubtless was written as typifying Jesus Christ and the referring of those who were in fear and distress unto him. The expression of flying for refuge by which coming to Christ is signified implies that before they come they are in fear of some evil. They apprehend themselves in danger, and this fear gives wings to their feet. Proverbs 18, verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The voice of God to a sinner when he gives him true comfort is a still small voice. But this voice is preceded by a strong wind and a terrible earthquake and fire as it was in Horeb when Elijah was there, 1 Kings 19, verses 11 and 12. And, behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire a still small voice. Another thing in the scriptures which seems to evince this is the frequent comparison made between the church spiritually bringing forth Christ and a woman in travail and pain to be delivered. John 16 verse 21 and Revelations 12 verse 2. The conversion of a sinner is represented by the same thing. It is bringing forth Christ in the heart. Paul speaks of men's regeneration as of Christ being brought forth in them, Galatians 4.19, and therefore Christ calls believers his mother, Matthew 12.49 and 50, and he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. Hosea 5, verse 15, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face, and their affliction they will seek me early, till they shall be guilty in the original doctrine, that it is God's manner to make men sensible of their misery and unworthiness before he appears in his mercy and love to them. They are made sensible of the desert of their sin that their sin deserves that wrath of God to which it exposes them. They are not only sensible of the dreadfulness of God's wrath, how fearful a thing it would be to fall into the hands of the living God and to sustain the external expressions of his fierce anger, as well as of the connection between their sins and this wrath, and how their sin exposed them to it, but God is also wont before he comforts them to show them that their sins deserve this wrath. By a clear discovery of the connection between their sin and God's wrath, they are sensible of their danger of hell, of which many are in a measure sensible, who are wholly insensible of their desert of hell. The threatenings of the law make them afraid, indeed, that God will punish sins, yet they have no thorough apprehension of their desert of the punishment threatened, and therefore many who are afraid murmur against God. They charge Him foolishly with being hard and cruel. But it is God's manner before He speaks peace to them and reveals His redeeming love and mercy in Jesus Christ to make them sensible that they also deserve it. 
Thus, Matthew 18, verses 24 through 26, And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him ten thousand talents. But forasmuch as he did not pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children, and all that he had, in payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him the debt. Very commonly, when men are first made sensible of their danger, their mouths are open against God and His dealings. That is, their hearts are full of murmurings. But it is God's manner before He comforts and reveals His mercy and love to them to stop their mouths and make them acknowledge their guilt or their desert of the threatened punishment. Romans 3:19 and 20 now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. God would convince men of their guilt before he reveals a pardon to them. Now a man cannot be said to be thoroughly sensible of his guilt till he is sensible that he deserves hell. A man must be sensible that he is guilty of death or guilty of damnation to use the scriptural mode of expression before God will reveal to him his freedom from damnation. A sense of guilt consists in two things, in a sense of sin and in a sense of the relation which sin has to punishment. Now, the relation which sin has to punishment is also twofold. First, the connection which it has with punishment by which it exposes to it and brings it, and secondly, its desert of punishment. When a man is truly convinced of his desert of the punishment to which his sin exposes him, then he may be said to be thoroughly sensible of his guilt. Then he has become guilty in the sense of our text and in the sense of Romans 3, verse 20. Inquiry. How is it that a sinner is made sensible of his desert of God's wrath? A, nat a natural man may have a sense of this, though not the same sense which a person may have after conversion, because a natural man cannot have a true sight of sin and of the evil of it. A man cannot truly know the evil of sin against God, except it be by a discovery of his glory and excellence and then he will be sensible how great an evil it is to sin against him. Yet it cannot be denied that natural men are capable of a conviction of their desert of hell, or that their consciences may be convinced of it without a sight of God's glory. The consciences of wicked men will also be convinced of the justice of their sentence, and of their punishment at the day of judgment, and doubtless will echo to the sentence of the judge, and condemn them to the same punishment. Here, therefore, we should inquire how it is that a natural man may be sensible of this. Number 1. We shall show what is the principle assisted. Number 2. How it is assisted. And 3. What are the chief external means which are used in order to this? Number 1. What principle in man is assisted in convincing him of his desert of eternal punishment? No new principle is infused. 
Natural men have only natural principles, and therefore all that is done by the Spirit of God before regeneration is by assisting natural principles. To observe, therefore, in answer to this inquiry, that the principle which is assisted in making natural men sensible of their desert of wrath is natural conscience. Though man has lost a principle of love to God, in all spiritual principles by the fall, yet natural conscience remains. Now there are two things which are the proper work of natural conscience. One is to give man a sense of right and wrong. A natural man has no sense of the beauty and amiableness of virtue, or of the turpitude and odiousness of vice. But yet every man has that naturally within which testifies to him that some things are right and others wrong. Thus, if a man steals or commits murder, there is something within which tells him that he has done wrong. He knows that he has not done right. Romans 2:14 and 15 For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. And the other work of natural conscience is to suggest the relation that is between right and wrong and a retribution. Man has that in him which suggests to him when he has done ill, a relation between that ill and punishment. If a man has done that which his conscience tells him is wrong, is unjust, his conscience tells him that he deserves to be punished for it. Thus natural conscience has a twofold power, a teaching or accusing and a condemning power. The Spirit of God, therefore, assists natural conscience the more thoroughly to do this its work, and so convinces a man of sin. Conscience naturally suggests, when he has done a known evil, that he deserves punishment. In being assisted to its work thoroughly, a man is convinced that he deserves eternal punishment. Though natural conscience does remain in the man since the fall, yet it greatly needs assistance in order to its work. It is greatly hindered in doing its work by sin. Everything in man which is part of his perfection is hindered and impaired by sin. A faculty of reason remains since the fall, but it is greatly impaired and blinded. So natural conscience remains, but sin in a degree stupefies it and hinders it in its work. Now when God convinces a sinner, he assists his conscience against the stupefaction of sin and helps it to do its work more freely and fully. The Spirit of God works immediately upon men's consciences. In conviction, their consciences are awakened. They are convinced in their consciences. Their consciences smite them and condemn them. Number two. It may be inquired how God assists natural conscience so as to convince the sinner of his desert of hell. I answer, one, in general it is by light. The whole work of God is carried on in the heart of man from his first convictions to his conversion by light. It is by discoveries which are made to his soul. But by what light is it that a sinner is made sensible that he deserves God's wrath? It is some discovery that he has. 
which makes him sensible of the heinousness of disobeying and casting contempt upon God. The light which gives evangelical humiliation and which makes man sensible of the hateful and odious nature of sin is a discovery of God's glory and excellence and grace. But what is it which a natural man sees of God which makes him sensible that sin against God deserves his wrath, for he sees nothing of the excellence and loveliness of God's glory and grace? I answer, number two... Particularly, it seems to be a discovery of God's awful and terrible greatness. Natural men cannot see anything of God's loveliness, His amiable and glorious grace, or anything which should attract their love, but they may see His terrible greatness to excite their terror. Wicked men in another world, though they do not see His loveliness and grace, yet they see His awful greatness, and that makes them sensible of the heinousness of sin. The damned in hell are sensible of the heinousness of their sin. Their consciences declare it to them. They are made sensible of it by what they see of the awful greatness of that being against whom they have sinned. And wicked men in this world are capable of being made sensible of the heinousness of sin the same way. If a wicked soul is capable, while wicked, of receiving the discoveries of God's terrible majesty in another world, it is capable of it in this. God may, if he pleases, make wicked men sensible of the same thing here. And in this way, natural men may be so made sensible of the heinousness of sin as to be convinced that they deserve hell, as is evident in that it is by this very means that wicked men will be made sensible of the justice of their punishment in another world and at the day of judgment. For then the wicked will see so much of the awful greatness of God, the judge, that it will convince their consciences what a heinous thing it was in them to disobey and contemn such a God, and will convince them that they therefore deserve his wrath which shows that wicked men are capable of being convinced in the same way. A wicked man, while a wicked man, is capable of hearing the thunders and seeing the devouring fire of Mount Sinai, that is, he is capable of being made sensible of that terrible majesty and greatness of God which was discovered at the giving of the law. But this brings me to the third thing the principal outward means which the Spirit of God makes use of in this work of convincing men of their desert of hell, and that is the law. The Spirit of God in all his work upon the souls of men works by his word, and in this whole work of conviction of sin that part of the word is principally made use of, the law. It is the law which makes men sensible of their sin, and it is the law attended with its awful threatenings and curses, which gives a sense of the awful greatness, the authority, the power, the jealousy of God. Wicked men are made sensible of the tremendous greatness of God, as it were, in the same manner in which the children of Israel were, by the thunders and earthquake and devouring fire, and sound of the trumpet and terrible voice at Mount Sinai. All the people who were in the camp trembled, and they said, Let not God speak with us, lest we die. So that it is a law which God makes use of in assisting the natural conscience to do its work. Galatians 3.24 Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, 
it is the law which God makes use of to make men sensible of their guilt and to stop their mouths. Romans 3.19 Now we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. It is the law which kills men as to trusting in their own righteousness. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. Galatians 2 verse 19 For I through the law am dead to the law. Conviction which precedes conversion is of sin and misery. But men are not thoroughly sensible of their sin or guilt till they are sensible they deserve hell nor thoroughly sensible of their misery, till they are sensible they are helpless. Number 4. It is God's manner to make men sensible of their helplessness in their own strength. It is usual with sinners, when they are first made sensible of their danger of hell, to attempt by their own strength to save themselves. They in some measure see their danger and endeavor to work out their own deliverance. They are striving to make themselves better. They strive to convert themselves, to work their hearts into a believing frame, and to exercise a saving trust in Christ. Having heard that if ever they believe they must put their trust in Christ and in Him alone for salvation, they think they will trust in Christ and cast their souls upon Him, and this they endeavor to do in their own strength. This is very common with persons upon a sickbed when they are afraid that they shall die and go to hell and are told that they must put their trust in Christ alone for salvation. They attempt to do it in their own strength. So sinners will be striving without a sense of their insufficiency in themselves to bring their own hearts to love God and to choose Him for their portion and to repent of their sins, or they strive to make themselves better, that so God may be more willing to convert them and give them His grace and enable them to believe in Christ and love God and repent of their sins. But before God appears to them as their help and deliverance, it is His manner to make them sensible that they are utterly helpless in themselves. They are brought to despair of help from themselves. There is a death to all their hopes from themselves. Romans 7 verse 9 Before God opens the prison doors, He makes them see that they are shut up, that they are close prisoners, and that there is no way in which they can escape. Escape. Christ tells us in Isaiah 61 verse 1 that he was sent to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Christ was sent to open the prison to them that are not only really but sensibly bound. Galatians 3 verse 23 but before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith that should afterwards be revealed. God makes men sensible that they are in a forlorn condition, that they are wretched and miserable and blind and naked before He comforts them. Christ tells us in John 9, verse 39, For judgment I come into the world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind meaning, partly at least, by those that see, those who think they see, having respect to the Pharisees who were proud of their knowledge. 
and by the blind, those who are sensibly blind. This is emblematically represented by Saul's blindness before his first comfort. He was blind till Ananias came to him to open his eyes, probably designed to intimate to us that before God opens the eyes of men in conversion, he makes them sensibly blind. God brings men to this despair in their own strength in these ways. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.